There it goes, deep into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in Astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to episode 9 of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragupathy. I'm Jacob Wessels, and today we have a very special guest. We are joined by perhaps the podcast's number one fan and my granddad, Gary Lightman. Well, it's a pleasure and an extreme honor to be on your podcast. I uh, would like to believe, and I think I am, your number one fan. Well, yes, but not, not probably of, of just this podcast, as you have your own podcast, a podcasting veteran on the show, uh, uh, Live from the Lounge, uh, very successful. Uh, yeah, we, we have been on the air for over three years, and we are, uh, in addition to a podcast, uh, we are a, actually a radio show. Uh, we're on uh, Fox Sports 1460 in Harrisburg and picked up by iHeartMedia all across the U.S. of A. How can people find that? Well, the, several ways. One is uh, just if you, you can download the uh, iHeartMedia app and uh, you'll see us there live from the lounge. Uh, or you can use whatever uh, uh, podcast uh, platform you you know Spotify whatever uh, and we're called live from the lounge and uh, we're pretty much on Facebook as well. So so for as big as Philadelphia sports fans as Vic and I are, I, you know I, I know that my, my granddad is just as big and has been a you know Phillies and, and Eagles and all sorts of Philly teams fans for. You know, far longer than I can imagine. So he's got so much, you know, fun, fun knowledge that I'm sure we're gonna, you know, you know, learn about today. So I'm very excited for this episode. I have a canonization I'm quite excited for, uh, and I think it's kind of topical. And I don't even know what Vic's planning on doing. So, so it should be a good time. All right. Well, uh, I am ready to, as they say, rock and roll. All right. The 0-1 pitch. A liner. We start off on October 13th, 1960, at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Pirates, ringless over the last 45 years, are in Game 7 against the mighty Yankees, whose run differential through the first six games of that series stood at plus 29. The Yankees had also won eight of the previous 13 World Series. The Pirates were about to be a champion unlike any other. For one thing, when Bill Mazeroski's homer put Pittsburgh up for good in the ninth, they not only became the first champion to overcome such a run differential and the first team to win a World Series on a walk-off home run, but they also had one thing no other champion ever had. It's very early, but any guesses? Jacob, you oh, probably boy. Well, I can tell you right now that I remember where I was when Bill Mazeroski hit that home run. Oh, yeah? I was, yeah, oh, yeah. I was in fifth grade. And I brought secretly a transistor radio to school because that was a weekday, if I recall. The way I know it was the game. And I was able to listen to that game from my little transistor sneaked in radio. But I still don't know where you're going, though. But other than that, you know, it's a little uh, old age experience. But I don't know what it is that they had that no one else had. 
I, I do know where you're going, uh, but I'm not going to spoil it yet. Yeah, it'll get revealed. It's one of your favorite things to talk about, and, and I, can, I can, let's just say I can picture Bill Mazeroski rounding third base. Yeah. I, he, I know what he's got going on. Yeah, if you have the visual, if you have the visual of that, you can see, or you will be able to see what I'm talking about eventually. But to comment on the the transistor radio story, which is wonderful, um, that's one thing that we've sort of missed. But I don't know if we've missed it or if it's um, in in some ways better for us. But Jacob, through our entire lifetime, we've had World Series games always at night, right? Or in like Saturday yeah. evening. No, no day games for the World Series for us, right? That is true. Yeah, I, I will say, and, and we'll, get, we'll get around to this when I do mine. One thing that I did realize that we're missing out on, though, and it kind of in the transistor radio era, is that there is something magical about reading about baseball games in a newspaper. It's very fun to, like, you know, kind of discover it in that way. And, and that is something that we, we do miss out on, you know, in a, when everything, you know, is instant news. Um, and I had a lot of fun doing research for mine today that it mostly involved reading from local newspapers and stuff about recaps of games and whatnot. Yeah. But we fast forward to July 21st, 2012. The Chester Valley Little League fields in Malvern, Pennsylvania. A new oh, The John Klein District 27 Championship between Berwyn Paoli and Great Valley. BP had been a juggernaut through that whole tournament, even beating Great Valley a couple rounds earlier. That game was a romp, but this one was a battle. Locked at three after a full six innings, BP held Great Valley scoreless in the top half of the seventh. Base runners came aboard early, and a 1-0 single with no outs was all that was needed to clinch victory and the tournament championship in extra innings. That great historic team, I'm pretty sure that was the last one from BP to date to win a district tournament, which of course I happened to be on, had two uh, things. I was waiting for that. I thought, thought that had to be had to be coming. Of course, of course. I was the, the starting catcher for that team. No big deal. But uh, that that great historic BP team had two things in common with the scrappy Pirates team from more than 50 years earlier. A series winning walk-off hit and iconic, clean aesthetically pleasing vest jerseys oh yeah absolutely you're right so very cool so i'll go on a pre-vest jersey aside as a player on the devon stratford john klein team that year and the starting left fielder for the team that was eliminated in i think semis without ever getting to play the um the berwin paoli juggernaut this is a this is a deep scar for me that season included one of the greatest baseball games I ever played. Um, uh, probably the best single play I ever made. And that says a lot about my baseball career <laughs> that happened when I was like 12 playing John Klein baseball, but uh, great season nonetheless. And that strikes you know, a sore, sore thumb for me. Yeah. That was a, a peak moment of my baseball career. That was definitely the peak year of my baseball career was that. And I think what really set the tone and made me realize early on, okay, I've made it, or okay, this, this is going to be a big year, is when we first received our vest jerseys. They had red undershirts, they were white jerseys. When it got really hotter, if we were playing away games, we just wore the jersey underneath, but typically we wore the vest and the whole thing. 
and it had fake buttons. It was like a pullover vest, but still, it felt very real. And the vest jersey is something that we've, for the most part, lost from baseball, um, with the exception of the Rockies are the ones that really regularly use it. And we see some alternates sometimes. Last year, the Reds were having fun because they had an anniversary year. They had a lot of sleeveless jerseys. Um, But vest jerseys actually came about in the late 30s and early 40s with the Cubs. And the 1939 Cubs got a vest jersey as an alternate. And then eventually they liked it so much, it became their home and away jerseys. Theirs quickly went away, but... The vest jerseys came back the next decade in 1956 with the Reds. Not only did the Reds adopt vest jerseys starting that year, I think that was Frank Robinson's first year. And so the vest jersey saw early champions in Frank Robinson and Ted Klazuski, big clue, who is, you know, this huge, strong guy who we might canonize at some point that notably always wore sleeveless jerseys even under his vest. And so, you know, really showing off the biceps and the tries. The Reds were quickly joined by the Pirates, the A's, the Indians through the 60s. The Orioles eventually had some, but the Vest jersey died in 1972. However, like the Grand Phoenix, the Vest jerseys rose again a couple of decades later when the alternate jersey craze was adopted in the 90s and the early 2000s. And in that time, a ton of teams, a ton of teams, the Blue Jays, the Devil Rays, the Diamondbacks, the Indians, the Mariners, the Angels, the Marlins, the Pirates, the Rangers, Rockies, Royals, Reds, Twins, and White Sox all wore vests at some point. There was a craze. It's like the 80s craze of the powder blue that I think at one point like 10 to 12 teams had. Like, the Twins had some, the Cardinals, obviously, the Phillies, obviously. A ton of powder blue in the 80s. It was that same way with vest alternates. And for the most part, I think they all work. They're all fantastic. the, The color contrast between the vest and the undershirt, sometimes they're the same color. Even then, it works. But I think you're kind of wasting the concept if you do that. Like, the Rockies today, they wear a vest jersey, but it's black on black. And, like, it should be purple on black or white on purple or white on black or or white on purple. I don't know. Nonetheless, it's slick. It's clean. It gives you freedom of movement. And it's closely tied to huge, huge moments. We've already talked about two of the biggest moments in baseball history, the 1960 World Series, the 2012 District 27 John Klein tournament. You know, we're talking about massive, massive watershed moments in baseball history. It doesn't just stop with those two. October 26th, 1997, Cleveland, Ohio. Jacob, I don't know if you know this, but your field. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm the Jacob of Jacob's field. Yes. Okay. I always thought so. Five-year-old franchise is pushing one of the longest snake-bitten clubs in MLB to a seventh and deciding game. Bob Costas said at the time, Indians fans have been waiting for this since 1948. Marlins fans had been waiting since Tuesday. It was a tight game all the way through. Craig Council tied it at two, scoring Moises Alou on a bottom nine, two-out single. And then in the 11th, again with two outs, and the series-winning run 90 feet away, 
represented by Craig Council, Edgar Renteria slaps a ground ball to center to bring him home. Now that happened the season before the Diamondbacks even became a franchise. Four years later, they were in the World Series, taking on a Yankees team that had been champions of the world for the past five years, including 75% of the time that Arizona even existed as an MLB franchise. This time, though, the underdogs won handily in their games, and the pinstripes squeaked by in their wins. The D-backs had a plus 22 run differential, a far cry from the Pirates in 1960. Game seven was on Sunday, November 4th. Scoreless through five and a half. Arizona struck first. The Yankees tied at the next inning, went ahead in the eighth, and then had the greatest closer ever on the mound in the ninth. Tony Womack tied the game with a double, and Craig Council, hey, he's back, was hit by a pitch to load the bases and bring up Luis Gonzalez. The infield is it. Gonzalez, who hit 57 home runs that year, fouls off the first pitch. Then he fights one off to center field, where an aggressively positioned Derek Jeter watches it drop to the grass, seemingly without a threat. Jay Bell crosses home plate, met only by the outstretched arms of teammate Matt Williams. Two indelible World Series images, just five years apart, both in best jerseys. There are two moments that you can think of, and immediately the final hits spring to mind. They're so classic. And that's three in total, three World Series winning hits that happened in Vest jerseys. I don't know if you've seen Aladdin, but if you look at Aladdin and you look at a lot of other characters, a lot of other genie characters, when they pop out of their lamps, because they're sporting Middle Eastern attire, many of them are wearing vests. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that vests themselves are pretty closely tied to magic. <laughs> I will say I've got a lot of I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of commentary. For one, the your perception of the '97 Marlins team is the perception of the '97 Marlins team that I think gets thrown around a lot. Well, maybe not yours, but the perception that Bob Costas had and whatever. The Indians were this waiting juggernaut, and the Marlins were like this upstart team that couldn't even win their own division. Whatever. I was shocked. I looked back at this World Series a few weeks ago. The Marlins are the better team. Yeah. And probably deserve to win that World Series on talent. So I just want to clear up that bad rap. I'm going to probably do a canonization of the 97 Marlins at some point to talk about their players and what that meant, whatever. Um, but secondarily, one of the greatest missed rebranding opportunities of all time was when the Brewers redid their uniforms this offseason and did not switch to vest uniforms. Craig Council, the manager of the Brewers, Craig Council, Best uniform hero. You put that man in a best uniform, he's winning a World Series, all right? So I don't, I mean, the Brewers, if they're ever going to win a World Series, they got to switch to the best uniforms. I think that's scientifically proven. Yeah, I think that's best magic coming back to bite them because Craig Council has to be in a best uniform or else, you know, his players are going to make awful gaffes in the, in the wild card game. And the other wild card team is going to go on a crazy improbable World Series run. Exactly. That's the Brewers. The Brewers are World Series champions if they're wearing best uniforms. Trent Grisham makes that catch, no doubt in my mind. 
surprisingly, the Brewers, they're not one of the franchises to really have a vest jersey. If you look at some of those franchises, they're mostly like on the fringes, like the Blue Jays, the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, you know, the Pirates. They're not like these crazy storied franchises. Obviously, the Pirates have been around for a long time, but it's typically newer franchises, you know, not really like your Yankees, your Red Sox. Those are the kinds of teams that are being taken down by the vest jerseys. The vest jerseys are a are uh, an anti-establishment jersey almost. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. I, I think one of the things about vest jerseys that's just fascinating to me personally is like, I know you've been obsessed with vest jerseys and you always talk about vest jerseys, whatever. To me, I never really process how many teams wore vest jerseys because I think they're so seamless looking that honestly, I have a hard time recognizing it's a vest and not that it's just a jersey with different colored sleeves. Oh, we'll talk right? about faux vest jerseys. Like, like, I, like, I think to me, like, the Rockies, despite, like, not even now, the Rockies back when they had their pinstripe vest jerseys, that was always, ju- that was never a vest jersey to me. That was always just a jersey with weird sleeves. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's something that I've always kind of, I just never really realized how prominent they were. We can have a faux vest conversation now. I mean, that, that's got its moments, too. Go back to June 10th, 1997 in Kauffman Stadium. One of the greatest catches of all time when Jim Edmonds goes straight back for a ball right over his head, lays out glove towards the wall right by the warning track, somehow comes down with it. That's a faux vest jersey. That's a jersey. It looks like a vest jersey, but the sleeves are a different color. And that's not the only amazing catch to be made by someone in a faux vest jersey. Even if you go back to a few years ago, uh, in March of 2017, the World Baseball Classic, Manny Machado strokes a sure fire home run, you know, to deep center field. Adam Jones, teammate on the Orioles, goes back for it. We've all seen the catch. Robs him his home run. Nothing Manny can do but tip his helmet Adam Jones' way. He just knows his teammate did something miraculous. And that happened in a faux vest jersey. And clearly MLB likes the vest jersey aesthetic. I'm wearing right now a Players Weekend jersey from a couple of years ago, specifically a Reese Big Fella Hoskins jersey. And it's red. It's a really nice red with a blue accent on the sleeves. So obviously MLB likes the look of a vest jersey, but I don't know why teams aren't jumping right in. And, you know, even it should be around more as an alternate even. I, I think one of the reasons actually why we see, we see less vest jerseys, and this is all just speculation, obviously, is because you've talked about, you know, alternate jerseys being a way to like sell additional uniforms. I don't know if people are looking to purchase vest jerseys. Like, I think it's a weird thing to wear and it requires a lot of like, you know, whatever. So I think it's likely just that vest jerseys don't sell that well. So if they can release like a powder blue alternate or like a cool colored alternate, it's much easier to sell that and then people can wear it like a normal baseball jersey then, you know, have like the issues associated with, uh, you know, wearing a vest jersey. Do I wear like an undershirt? Do I not wear an undershirt? How does it look if I don't wear an undershirt? The whole thing is just kind of weird. You kind of need the Klazuski or Dietrich biceps uh, to really pull off the, the vest jersey, no undershirt. Uh, you got to defend the outfit you're wearing there, Vic. You look pretty studly in that. I got to admit. Well, 
yes, yeah. I, I appreciate that. And that is one solution is that if teams make vest jerseys, they can sell them as faux vests. I just think it's a great look. Even if teams start to do the vote, the faux vest thing, there is a good look associated with the faux vest as well. And as we talked about, some great moments there. And there'll be ads all over jerseys, and there may not be enough uh, advertising space on a vest jersey. Maybe, maybe. Too, you lose the sleeves, which I think do kind of give you a, another venue, you know, for, for, for content. Right, that's true. That's true. Who knows? I mean, if uh, the companies getting advertised are okay with some of the beefier players maybe cutting off the undershirts, maybe they'll be okay with undershirts. But uh, that's true. A sleeve real estate is pretty crucial for the future of uniform advertising. No, I was going to say, when you have biceps as big as mine, you could put a lot of ads on there. The thing is, your biceps themselves are an ad for whatever protein powder you're obviously using. <laughs> I'll have to call them. Tell them I'll save my left bicep for them. Um, there are great vest moments that we haven't even talked about yet. Like the 98 Mariners jersey. That's the year that Lou Pinello won his, went on his iconic, crazy, hat-kicking rant at, again, Jacobs Field, protesting a double play call. And I think he kicked his hat maybe like 10, 12, 15 times around the diamond before tossing it out in the crowd and getting it tossed right back into him. He's wearing a vest jersey for that. In fact, you know who's a big fan of the vest jersey? Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. liked the home vest jersey so much that – the Mariners adopted this plan where they, all the players took one of their road uniforms, right? They've got a, they've got a set of road grays, like a rotation so they can wear them back to back to back days. And they all took one of them and just cut the sleeves off and they got them all hemmed. And so for the rest of that year, they went on playing with a kind of unofficial road alternate gray that was a vest jersey, just because Ken Griffey Jr. was so keen on them. Ken Griffey Jr., in fact, hit his 500th home run in a vest jersey, playing for the Reds. And he looks, he certainly looks real clean in that. They could definitely bring back their vest jerseys. I think they got a great reaction from the people last year when they were bringing back all the jerseys from their history, because it was a big, what was it, like the 150th anniversary of their franchise or something like that? Something like that for the Reds. Yeah, something like that, something big. I mean, how about the White Sox? The 2005 White Sox is one of the great forgotten teams of all time. They played the first two games of the ALDS against the Red Sox in vest jerseys. They won both of those, including a big 14-3 route in game one. That propelled them to a sweep. That White Sox team lost one game all postseason. They weren't wearing vest jerseys the whole time, but I'd like to think the fact that they included that in the rotation is what made them so dominant. There's also 2002, the Athletics won 20 games in a row. And as we know, on that 20th game, they almost blew an 11-run lead, but they didn't, as dramatized in the film Moneyball, right? Their opponents that day, the Kansas City Royals, were wearing vest jerseys. So the vest magic didn't quite work out for them in the end, though they were able to come back from an 11-0 deficit. However, the last moment I'm going to talk about comes way, way before that. When the Vest Magic once helped Kansas City and the Athletics at the same time. It was when they were the Kansas City Athletics, in fact. On September 25th, 1965, they trotted out 
a 59-year-old Satchel Paige as their starting pitcher. They were playing the Red Sox, who weren't that great of a team, but had the foundation of the impossible dream pennant winning team that would come two years later. Satch came in and uh, was facing some overconfidence, shall we say, from the Red Sox, particularly from Tony Canigliario, um, who was in his second year in the big leagues, young phenom, and was sure that he, of all people, as the young bull and the, the next big thing in MLB, could take on Satch and come out the victor. Well, at just shy of 60 years old, probably, like we don't even know what his real age is. He could have been a good deal older than that. Satchel Page pitched three innings and allowed just one hit, a double in the first inning to Carl Yastrzemski. Tony C. couldn't hit him. Neither could the rest of the Red Sox. He made it once through the lineup, and he didn't give up a single run, only that one hit through three innings. And all the while, Satchel Page did that and made his last major league start wearing a vest jersey. And it just goes to show that when you're the best, it's never too late to come back. And when you're the best, it's never too late to come back. So, best jerseys, 2020 and beyond. We got to see it. I'd like to see best jerseys back. I'd like to see baseball back for starters. Yeah. Hey, maybe we can get vest jerseys in the KBO. Yeah. <laughs> no vest jerseys in the KBO, right? All regular jerseys. We've been watching the highlights every day and compiling them. Uh, yeah, I didn't see any. So you've expressed your take on vest jerseys. What is your take on the sleeveless jerseys the Mariners wore for like that throw forward night or whatever? Turn, it, turn ahead. That was great clock. fun to see most crews just rocking the, yeah. Yeah, they brought those back, I think, a couple of years ago, like in 2018. And they were cool then, honestly. And they're set for 2027, I think, because I think they used them in 97. So we'll see in seven years if the Mariners actually do make good on that and bring them. I like them. I know. I think they're kind of divisive from what I gather. But I'm, I'm in favor of them. At least they're different. It's cool. I mean, like... D. Gordon was, like, wearing his untucked and had his hat backwards like Griffey was. And, you know, I, it was just cool. I think it was a really bold choice of theirs to give themselves completely new colors. Like, they're saying 30 years from now, we're not going to be anywhere close to the blue, green, even, like, yellow. Yeah, I, their colors suck. I think the uniforms would be very cool. It was the same uniform, same design, but they had the traditional Mariner colors. Because the new maroon gray, it was terrible. Yeah, it just doesn't make you think of the Northwest at all. Like it looks like, like it looks like something the Reds would have or something like that, uh, or we would have. But if they use that with the blue aquamarine, whatever teal colors that they have now, yeah, I think that's a winner. Yeah, yeah, that's my take on it. I think they're cool. I don't think they're as cool as the people on the baseball internet were going on and on about. I feel like they got a lot of praise, and I feel like their praise was like, yeah, it was like pretty cool, but it wasn't the craziest thing ever. Yeah. In general, though, I mean, the Rockies are doing it now, right? The Rockies were doing it when Matt Holiday definitely didn't touch home. He wasn't wearing a vest jersey. That's black on black. It's cool. It at least 
keeps them. They give them somewhat of a foothold. And the, the World Baseball Classic using them and Players Weekend using the faux vest, I think shows that vest jerseys are still very fashionable. So hopefully we see them soon. I don't know who's going to be the ones to bring them back. It might have to be the Reds or something like that. One of the original. And I, I really like your angle that vest jerseys are the jerseys of underdogs because that really is, is true. That's, you know, what they represent represent it's not the traditionalist baseball it's you know kind of the new ex expansionary baseball and like that kind of stuff and at the same time i think that you know i kind of think of vest jerseys as being kind of niche and kitschy and then you just make a list of all of the moments they were involved in throughout baseball history and you go ah, actually this is the this is the kind of random thing that just permeates baseball history and you don't even realize it and then it's like a, a thing you know and that's just basically what the entire history of baseball is. It's just these things stacking on top of one another. And yeah. one of them is the best person. If you just look at World Series, like a handful of them have been won on a walk-off hit. And three of them have been done in vest jerseys. Not in games where vest jerseys like were taking place by teams wearing vest jerseys at the time of getting the hit. In game seven. And so... I think it's got touchstone-type relevance. I think it's got, you know, all the aesthetic qualities that you would want. It's a dash of different, which we love to see in baseball and sports in general. And it's kind of really hard to screw up. Like, the turn-ahead-the-clock jerseys are, like, really kind of out there. But they still kind of work. So it's, it's, it just goes to show that it's, it's really hard to, to make the vest look bad in baseball. Yep, I agree. Out in Anaheim's beautiful new $24 million stadium, completed only last year, is in a gay holiday mood. Richie Allen, who hit 40 homers last year, leads off the National League second inning. Dean Chance now faces the dangerous Philly slugger. With the count one and one, he fires a breaking pitch. But Allen connects solidly, and there it goes. It's way, way back. It's a home run. A 400-footer that sails into the bleachers in deep right center. Now, that pitch was in a perfect spot, low and outside. And it's a tribute to Allen's great strength that he could slam a pitch like that such a tremendous distance. It's the first run of the game. I got a text from Jacob asking me who should be canonized. And one of the things that I love about your show is when you canonize players that maybe never really uh, had the name, the, 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 you know, the big uh, uh, headlines, whatever. But there was a player that played for the Phillies. He had a 15-year major league career, played nine years with the Phillies, that personally, absolutely, in my opinion, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And he uh, has never made it. He came close, but he still never made it. And I would like to see Richie Allen or Dick Allen, whichever you prefer, canonized. At least he could have that honor. He's still living. So maybe he will tune into the show and uh, hear that he has been canonized. I think he is one of the most, you know, prolific hitters of his era and I think people don't give him that kind of respect we've talked on this show before kind of about how the early 70s you know late 60s have were really kind of a dense spot for offense and, and how offense really tapered off and I mean he was putting up like 900 even over a thousand OPSs in that era you know that's a, like you know 
just on un uncanny kind of production. Well, he had uh, uh, almost a 300 uh, lifetime batting average. Uh, he had uh, just a shade less than 400 home runs. Um, and one of the more interesting stories that uh, you want to talk about baseball history, on September 6th, 1976. Do you guys, I don't know if you guys remember where you were, but I know where I was. I was sitting in Shea Stadium because that year the Phillies had a, believe it or not, a 15 and a half game lead over the second place Pittsburgh Pirates. And I'm feeling like life is good. We're making the playoffs. And then the Phillies had an eight-game losing streak. And uh, it was ugly. And everybody was in a panic mode over this huge losing streak and, and you know, what terrible things were, were going to happen. And uh, the Phillies were playing the Mets. And I went to the game because uh, a friend of mine and I had never seen the Phillies lose when we went to the game in person. So... We figured we got to drive to New York and be there for the Phillies in this game. Jacob knows my, my best friend, Larry Christensen, who was the starting pitcher in that game. And in the first inning, and I'm going to get to Richie Allen in a moment because it's part of the story. In the first inning, the Mets got three consecutive singles. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, there's the bases are loaded now. This is terrible. But make a long story short, they get out of the inning uh, with only giving up one run. So it's now one to nothing Mets. And Larry eventually gets up to bat and he broke his bat. And when pitchers travel, they don't take a lot of bats for the pitchers. I mean, they're, they're not expected to be able to worry about their bats. So he didn't have another bat. So he went to Richie Allen. And he said, hey, can I borrow your bat? And Allen said, if you can swing it, you can use it. Because Richie Allen used a 42-ounce bat, which was crazy back then. Nobody used a 42-ounce bat. Larry That's took crazy. the – I don't What's know that? if we ever used a 42-ounce bat. No. Yeah, we've but, talked about some big bats, what it, Alfonso Soriano and, and some others on this podcast. That's easily, easily the huge – the biggest piece oh yeah so Larry gets up with the 42 ounce bat and hits a home run and uh, the game ended three to one Phillies Larry hit two home runs with Richie Allen's bat and broke the losing streak and the Phillies went on into the playoffs that year so uh, I always thought that was a great story and I was there for it and what a magic bat that was yes it was because Mr. Allen had a prolific MLB career swinging. He had a great MLB career as a player, but the problem was he was truly despised in Philadelphia. He was booed all the time. And I don't know if you guys know about it, but it was funny because uh, you talk about the old pirates. Willie Stargell had a very famous quote about Richie Allen. And what he said was, he said, I now know why. Uh, the Phillies fans booed uh, Richie Allen all the time. And he said, because when he hit a home run, there was never a souvenir. Because when he hit one, it went out of the stadium. <laughs> nobody, nobody hit balls as far as, as Allen did. 
he has records at back at the old Connie Mack Stadium. Uh, he had four home runs that actually left the entire stadium. Wow. I mean, wow, just unbelievable. But yeah. I, I mean, this is just the problem of playing baseball in this time period. I just think people, you know, have less of a respect for these kind of counting stats because he'd be hitting 30 home runs a year, but that now would be like league leading. Now 30 home runs is like yeah, good point. Sure. Lots of guys hit 30 home runs. So you look at his, you know, his baseball reference page, and it doesn't really jump off to you. But the one number that really does jump off the page to me is the 156 career OPS plus, because that's adjusted for era and for competition. Yeah. And 156 OPS plus puts him 19th all time into a tie with Willie Mays and Frank Thomas. So wow. how about that kind of competition? I mean, those are two inner, inner circle Hall of Famers. And sure, Willie Mays played for much longer. He played a primary defensive position in center field. But Frank Thomas is like a fairly good cop for, for, for Dick Allen, you know, in terms of what they were able to do. <laughs> like you're talking about the best era for pitching ever post the dead ball era. And just like our man, Jimmy Wynn, he's posting ungodly OPS numbers. You know, two seasons above a thousand. You're talking about three, four seasons with an OPS plus above 170, including he almost cracked 200 in 72. Um, I actually story, heard a story about, uh, or read a story about Dick Allen recently in the Inquirer, um, talking about his Veterans Committee Hall of Fame candidacy, and speaking of. Uh, Dick Allen in 1976 when he is sort of like the the elder statesman of that Phillies team of like a, a Phillies team that's about to be really really good and go to a few straight National League Championship Series and eventually win a couple pennants in a World Series and Dick Allen sort of the elder statesman there. I read a story uh, where Mike Schmidt was kind of struggling in um, in April and he wasn't having any fun. He was being very, very serious. And he, and the game was just, he was just not letting the game come to him. And Dick Allen pulls him aside and sees that he's not relaxed. And he says, um, all right, Mike, let's you and I just concentrate on, on having fun today. And immediately the Phillies went down 12-1 or something like some crazy number that they had to come back. Was that the game in Chicago when the yeah. Phillies came? Yeah. I'll ne I, I remember where I was with that game too. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, you know, exactly what happened. Where were you for that yeah. game? I was driving in my car, uh, heading, I think probably uh, down to Philly for some reason and listening to it. And I just couldn't believe what was going on. That's the game that Schmidt hit four home runs. Yep. And he had definitely had a lot of fun that game. And a, yeah. big, a big reason for that was Dick Allen was the guy to pull him aside and just be like, you know, slow your roll a little bit. And I think the Phillies came back from that in that game, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They won the game. Yeah, it was incredible. So I think if we're going to, you know, talk about, about maybe why Dick Allen hasn't had the same, you know, support even from the baseball writers, from the Veterans Committee more recently, is just that his, like his, his, you know, counting stats aren't that high because he didn't play for that long, right? So he, he really 15 only... 15 years. 15 years is a pretty big career, oh, isn't it? 15 years is a big career. But, but, but 
the last two years of his career, he was basically just a part-time player. And the first yeah. year of his career, he played 10 games. So you're really yeah. looking at 11 years, right? Yeah, well, oh, that's true. You're right. So, so when you look at 11 years, even if he's, you know, he's producing the same way he's, he's just crushing the ball, he only winds up with 351 career home runs. I mean, if someone does what he does over an 18-year career, they're in the 500 home run club easily, you know? If, I mean, if you take his, his, his age 22 to age, you know, 32 seasons, that doesn't look unlike what Hank Aaron was doing. I mean, it's kind of almost a carbon copy of, of kind of the consistency year in, year out, mid-30s home runs, that kind of stuff. But I think it's just the length and the inability to kind of put those kind of numbers together. But given the fact that his career wasn't that long, it's astounding that he put up almost 60 career wins above replacements. I mean, he had a nine-war rookie year. That's got to be one of the greatest rookie seasons ever. I'm trying to remember how many uh, all-star teams he made. There were a lot. of all. He was rookie of the year his first year. And, Gary, I'm sure you remember that Phillies team that he started his career on. Speaking of you know, avoiding a collapse in his last year with the Phillies. I, I'm sure yeah. you've got sour memories of that 64 team. I will never forget it. In fact, uh, I got to know uh, one of the pitchers uh, it, uh, for that, um, that year, um, Art Mahaffey, and who is still around, and he uh, uh, sells insurance up in Allentown. But he uh, <clears throat> claims that uh, the uh, coach – um, I can't believe my mind just went on uh, who, the, who the manager was. Gene Mock. Gene Mock. Absolutely, you're right. But he said he burned him out. It ruined his career because when they started slipping away in 64, they started pitching him like every other day. And it just burned up his arm, and that was the end of his career. Mm. An infamous, infamous Phillies team uh, around the city because it, what, was, what was the lead that they had? Uh, going into the last couple weeks of the season they had over the Cardinals. It was at least a six-game lead, and they just slipped away, and it ended up – they ended up tied, and they went to a one-game playoff that they then lost to the Cardinals. But it was funny because even the commercials back then, they were so sure that the Phillies were going to make it. I still remember uh, the uh, beer commercial. They had a song about how the Phillies are going to the World Series, and, <laughs> and it really – was so horrible. <laughs> that was absolutely a heartbreaker. Twelve games left, six and a half game lead, yeah. and uh, and they and they blow it. Yep, that's Steal when it. they were talking about uh, the Phillies moving their entire franchise to the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, they were going to change their name to the Manila Folders. Oh, it's so good. I mean, I think that's part of the reason, though, that, that you know, maybe he doesn't, Dick Allen doesn't get the respect he deserves, though, because, you know, he just didn't play in the playoffs that often, right? Like, no. he, he had the, you know, the chance to play in the playoffs early in his career and ended up not playing out. And then he makes that, he has the, just the one NLCS in 1976, the only yeah. appearance of his career. And so it's just, and it's tough for him to, you know, play on the national stage, especially in an era where there's not, you know, a bunch of baseball games on TV time you don't get that kind of exposure unless you play in the world series but he was he had so you know he used to wear a batting helmet when he'd go out when he was playing first base because fans would throw things at him i mean he was a uh, a, a different kind of person uh then that yeah i mean today it, he'd be no big deal but back then uh he used to chain smoke cigarettes in the dugout 
he was a very, very heavy drinker. Uh, he had, and he had a big afro back in the days when that was not, you know, most baseball players were clean cut, whatever. And he just called it like he saw it. Matter of fact, um, Frank, was it, uh, I'm trying to remember whether it was who it was. He had a fist fight. The, the Philly, a fellow Phillies player hit him with a bat and, uh, they, they went into a, a knockdown drag out fist fight. One of the first black Phillies. Yeah, he was. Um, in fact, it's sad to say, I believe the Phillies were the last team in baseball to ever have a black player. And, uh, and he was proud of himself and proud of who he was. And unfortunately, back in those days, that got a lot of blowback. Uh, it was very difficult for him. And that's why I have so much respect for the man. And I would just love to see uh, at least maybe that stat that Jacob came up with. Maybe that'll be enough to get him over the top. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely think it should. He missed on the last Veterans Committee vote that he was eligible for by one vote. So yeah, I think I the Veterans Committee cycle is coming back around soon. And we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens to him. Because, you know, obviously it'd be good to see him in the Hall of Fame. He didn't get a ton of support from the writers. Uh, he never got above like 17% uh, from the writers. So that's kind of interesting to think about. Well, he didn't like to talk to the press. I mean, he was very uh, uh, difficult to deal with. I mean, that was the problem. But, uh, but I, know, I still know some players very well that played with him and i am telling them about your podcast and i'm going to see if, that they can get the word to him to tune this in and know hopefully that you're rooting for him to get in exactly hmm. um so one of the things you mentioned the stat that i brought up and i'm now going to go on one of my 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 brief tangents um i was looking at the names above uh dick allen in terms of ops uh plus leaders right? Because there's only 15 people above him. So it's a lot of all-time greats. Barry Bonds, uh, Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, all-time greats. And there was one name that jumped out to me as not an all-time great, and that is the name Dave Orr. And I was like, I wonder who this Dave Orr guy is, who put up a, a career 162 OPS plus. How have I never heard of him? Often the answer is they played in the 1800s. That is the answer with Dave Orr, who played from 1883 to 1890. So even yeah, I, I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't remember where I was then either. Let's just say Dave Orr is an interesting guy. He played for, for New York. He played in New York. And the thing about Dave Orr is that he was 5'11", 250, which is really quite a Oh, man. my God. <laughs> I mean, if you look at his picture, like I saw his picture and I was like, that guy looks fat. And then I saw that he was 5'11", 250. You know what? Oh, wow. Somehow, 31 triples in 1886. I don't know how he did that. <laughs> That's got to be a sight to see that guy legging out a triple. Well, can you imagine the ads you could put on his jersey? Holy oh, Lord. yeah. <laughs> you could do billboards. <laughs> they, they wrote a song about him uh, that was published in Sporting Life magazine. And the chorus of the song goes, Oh, Dave Columbus, you've got our Dave. You've got a jewel with immense worth, is as great as his girth, and may his shadow know no waste, and remain as great as his waist. Wherever you are, success attend you, Dave. Mm. And that was the Dave Orr song uh, that was by the Sporting Life magazine. Um, <laughs> what a That's funny. Guy. 
that's the thing I love so much about doing, you know, this whole podcast is just, you know, you start one place, you know, with, with Dick Allen, you hear all these great stories about his career and somehow you find your way to the 250 pound first baseman Dave Orr. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's shocking that there, I mean, there've been a lot of hall of fame wrongs righted by the veterans committee, you know, whether it's Jack Morris or Alan Trammell, but like Dick Allen seems like he would be a shoe in for that. You're talking about a 912 OPS through the heart of the second dead ball era. You, you, he's got a lot of black ink. He's, he leaves the league in OBP multiple years, slugging percentage multiple years, OPS multiple years. Uh, he's leading the league in RBIs and home runs, yeah. even triples his rookie year, total bases. Um, he makes, what, seven All-Star games, MVP votes in seven different years, including three top seven finishes, including one year where he won the MVP. I don't know whether it's a thing where he played for a few different teams and the team that he played most for was particularly inhospitable, whether it was a thing of some inherent racism from the press whether it was uh, played for a little while, but a career probably shortened by the hardships he had to face, you know, uh, in terms of facing the fans and the discrimination that he had to uh, endure, uh, probably shortening his career in the long term. But I mean, he, like he are, like Jacob said, he accrued 59 career B-war. I don't know how he's been ignored for so long. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. It really is. Because I love the guy. I mean, as I said, there were problems. And then, you know, he, when he changed his name from Richie to Dick Allen, it was said that he did that because some of the things he did that people didn't like, the drinking and the smoking or whatever, uh, that he was going to change that to come back to the Phillies. And, and now he was going to be Dick Allen, not Richie Allen. And, uh, you know, it's a shame that uh, what happened. He had a great, some great years with the White Sox. And uh, but then finished up with the Phillies. And I hope that I, I assume that if he does make the haul, he'll go in as a Philly. And it would be my treat to have you guys go up there with me. We drag Harold Baines to the mud a lot as kind of just being the example now of a guy who just doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But as a wrong righted by the Veterans Committee, I mean, the fact that they inducted Harold Baines and won't induct Dick Allen is, is unbelievable. Because Harold Baines is a 121 career OPS plus, which makes him 142nd all time. And the guy who was 15th on the list, and they basically have the same numbers across the board. Very similar. Baines played for a few more years, but it's very similar home run totals, very similar RBI totals. Allen has double the war. Uh, we don't even get into that. But, but the fact that those two guys can be compared, and Allen is just so much better than him. And, yeah. and Baines is a guy who can get in, and Allen is a guy who can't. It's just stunning to me. And one of the arguments that Tony Russo made when he was talking about how he inducted Harold Baines into the Hall of Fame, which was the stupidest comment ever, is like Harold Baines was clutch. He led the league in game-winning hits. He led the league in walk-off hits. Well, I just found a stat that Dick Allen, that he is 10th all-time in walk-off home runs. He's a clutch player, too. He's, you know, he's got all the stuff you're looking for. I'm telling you, you got to be, I mean, you, you're sold me. I've already was sold. That was excellent. Hall of Fame statistics are, are kind of 
hit or miss because a lot of times and I know I definitely do this is like you take it's like you cherry pick some of the Hall of Fame statistics to to prove your point like oh look at his Hall of Fame monitor like uh, all these different statistics that are created by by different baseball writers right I might say oh look at his jaws whereas or look at his peak war whereas like his black ink is lacking but you look at everything black ink uh, you know, leading the league and things, gray ink, like being top five or top 10, Hall of Fame monitor and Hall of Fame standards. I'm not quite sure what to describe those, but pretty much like if a Hall of Famer reaches 100 on a Hall of Fame monitor, they're probably going to make the Hall of Fame. And like Jaws and Peak War, you look at every single statistic that writers have created to judge whether or not someone is a Hall of Famer, in every single one of those, Dick Allen is either exactly on it, a decent amount above it, or in a reasonable range. Like, there's only really one or two of those statistics where he's below the standard by a decent amount, and it's still in, like, a negotiable range, and everything else is right on par or far exceeding what you would need. What about your famous uh, vest player, Bill Mazeroski? Now, is he not in the Hall of Fame? He is in the Hall of Fame. People like yeah, to talk I mean, about his hands, about his hands at second base turning double plays. But he was a non-factor on offense. And I he know. Was a pretty good defensive defensive player, really. He wasn't like Ozzie Smith level. I mean, yeah. one home run put him in the Hall of Fame. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a sad commentary. I mean, there's just so much there. The race element, the just everything about it. He's just a monumental figure in Philadelphia sports, and. And, you know, growing up as a Philadelphia Phillies fan, you hear about him all the time as, you know, in the same yeah. upper echelon with all the other Phillies greats. And so it's just kind of shocking that he hasn't gotten his due yet. And I would like to think that it's coming soon. Well, I hope so, too. Maybe if he wore a, a, a vest jersey like Mazeroski, he would have been in already. Yep. <laughs> He's on the wrong end of the match. Yeah, that's the problem. There's every indication that if he had, was afforded some of the luxuries of other players or, you know, had an easier go of it off the field in MLB, you know, was able to pad some of his yeah. owning stats at the, at the end of his career um, and stick around a little longer, you could easily see him racking up 70 wins above replacement. He already reached the thousand RBI mark, but, you know, he could far exceed that. He could get to 2,000 hits. He could get to 400 home runs. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's a tough sell to induct someone into the Hall of Fame who has less than 2,000 hits and less than 400 home runs, who's known primarily as a slugger, right? If you're going to sell the slugger mold, you got to sell that with some numbers to back it up. And I think he has those numbers year to year, especially when contextualized for the era he's playing in. I have no doubt in my mind he's played in a more offensive-friendly era. He's over 400 home runs. He's over 2,000 hits. He's got all those things. And I think OPS plus bears that out. But it's just a tougher sell when he's going up against other players with better counting stats. It's just a, it's an interesting and kind of fickle situation for him to be in because he's so clearly getting devalued or ignored by writers. But during his time, they were voting for him for MVP, right? They were voting for him for Rookie of the Year. Yeah. You hear countless stories about, about fans being hostile towards him. But I also hear a lot of people like yourself, Gary, and, and uh, like others 
who grew up watching the Phillies in the 60s, and he was one of, if not their favorite player. And you also hear about, and like he was voted to the All-Star game a bunch of times. So all those, all those different things apply to him. And it's not, it's not just one thing. It's just a kind of frustrating combination. It just comes out to the fact that it's baffling that he's not in the hall already. Yes, but he's been canonized. So at exactly. least it's not a total loss. 3-2. Alonso hits one deep to left. Tendler going back. He's at the track looking up. Goodbye. Another one for Peter Alonso. So I'm going to tell you guys a story that I think we all need right now. It's about an unusually large kid who, when he was 12 years old, snuck away from a day's work on his parents' farm to catch a ball game. Because, you see, not a lot happens in Oklahoma. But on this day, something special was happening. The kid had always loved sports. But since he was big and from Oklahoma, he had grown up playing football. But on this day, when professional sports came to his small town, Dizzy Dean was coming to town to pitch in an exhibition game against Satchel Paige and his barnstorming Kansas City Monarchs. And it was after that day, Joe Bauman would never play football again. The baseball was too interesting, too much fun. And since he'd always been a nice guy, football was just too violent. On that summer afternoon, Joe Bauman decided he wanted to become a baseball player. And not the kind of baseball player who made big money playing in the major leagues and chased championships and awards, who made baseball his job. But instead, his dream was to bring baseball to small towns like his and recreate the magical day of summer that changed his life over and over again. How ironic then, that on the same day, on the same page of the same newspaper that outlines Bauman's magical day at the ballpark, we see an opinion piece chastising Ken Griffey Jr., perhaps the most beloved player ever, for complaining about how he needed rest and he didn't want to play in an exhibition game in Zebulon, North Carolina. That was part of baseball's project to establish goodwill after the 94 strike. That's because while baseball might be a pleasant distraction for us, it was Griffey's job. But one season into double-A baseball for the Boston Braves, marred in a tense contract negotiation, Joe Bauman realized he didn't want baseball to be his job. He just wanted baseball to help create the magical day when he was 12 years old again and again. So at 26, he retired from professional baseball, moved back to Oklahoma, opened up a gas station, and started playing semi-pro ball for the Elk City Elks. In a way, Joe Bauman represented a different way baseball could be a job. The job countless minor leaguers, many of them recognizing they probably don't have a shot at the show, sign up for every summer as they accept pitifully low amounts of money bring baseball joy to towns across the country. That's the true magic of minor league baseball. At their lowest levels, they aren't about prospects, promotion, and even major league baseball. It's about the magic of a warm summer night, a hot dog, the pop of the mitt and the crack of the bat, cheering without real concern about the outcome, and the joy of seeing something so familiar, so freeing, and so fun. Minor league baseball didn't die this week but the release of hundreds of minor league players certainly didn't help. It's been dying for a long time, actually, ever since Joe Bauman hung him in his cleats, if we're going to be honest. But right now, in this unique moment, the minor leagues are what we need most. Baseball comfort food, free from all the controversies and negotiations that have baseball in the news right now. Because no matter how beloved the stars of the majors may be, baseball is a job for them. That's why we need the minor leagues, to remind us that baseball is a children's game, 
supposed to be fun and comfortable and familiar. Once we learn this crucial lesson, we might be lucky enough to watch someone do what Joe Bauman did once again. But what exactly did he do? Well, that story starts one day, four years after Bauman retired from professional baseball, when a mysterious man walked into Joe Bauman's gas station, took one look at his 6'5", 240-pound frame, and asked him, son, have you ever played baseball before? So we're gonna talk now about what Joe Bauman did and what makes his accomplishment so special and, and kind of how Joe Bauman represents minor league baseball as a whole and what's been a tough week for minor league baseball. So Joe Bauman, uh, you know, decided he wanted to become a baseball player uh, after this, going to this game and, and watching this baseball when he was four years old. And, you know, he was quite successful playing in rural Oklahoma. He got you know, drafted. He, he was playing for the Dodgers farm system for a little bit. He never made it past a ball. He then went to war when he came back from World War II. Uh, he signed on with the Boston Braves. He got promoted all the way as high as AAA. And basically in his AAA season, the team wanted to cut his salary. And he basically said to the team, look, I can make more money selling shoelaces on the street corner in El Paso. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home. I'm going to make my money the way I want to make my money. And I'm going to play baseball for fun. Because he didn't want baseball to become a job. That was his whole thing. He just wanted baseball to be fun. And so he went back home and he opened up a gas station. He found some semi-pro team that's not on baseball reference, not anywhere. You can't find any of his stats from this time. It was just kind of a dark period. And for four years, that's what Joe Bauman did. He hung out and he played semi-pro baseball. And then as I alluded to, one day some guy came into Joe Bauman's gas station and informed him that they were starting up a new league of minor league baseball. They were starting up this league called the Longhorn League. And it had been in action for a few years, but they were still looking to get talent from the local area. It was basically the lowest level of minor league baseball, like the lowest level you can possibly get. And they were looking for players to fill out some of these rosters, and all the teams were going to come from the Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico area, that kind of area. And he was starting a team in, in um, Asteria, Arrestia. It's a weird name to say. And he wanted Joe Bauman to try out for the team just because of how big he was. And also, you know, once Joe Bauman told him about his baseball background. And so they pull this guy literally off of semi-pro ball fields. And he's like a mythical stature, 6'5", 250. He's already kind of a local legend, right? So kids in the area go to these semi-pro games all the time. The, the semi-pro team is like a, a local celebrities. And Joe Bauman is the star of this semi-pro team. They pluck this guy out from that crazy background and they put him into the lowest level of minor league baseball. And Joe Bauman absolutely destroys it. He has one of the craziest couple of seasons ever. So his first two seasons, 1952-1953, he hits 375 and 371. He has fit over 50 home runs in each season. He has 157 RBIs, 141 RBIs. I mean, he has one of the – he slugs over 800 one of those seasons. I mean, he just has one of the – two of the craziest baseball seasons ever. And by the way, I looked it up since you mentioned this, but he was nine years older, but growing up in Welch, Oklahoma, he grew up one county over from – any guesses? No clue. Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle. Oh, wow. wow. 
And so, so there's a couple of things that, you know, we got to talk about when we talk about, about Joe Bauman and, and what he accomplished. So, you know, we set the stage, first two seasons, he's age 30, age 31 seasons, he goes off. And there are some just interesting things about the way Joe Bauman played. So first of all, it's worth noting that this league that he was playing in, the Longhorn League, was ridiculously offensive. They, when they were creating this league, they wanted to create a league with maximum offense. So basically, they built all these stadiums facing directly in the direction that the wind would push balls out, and they put them in areas where it would be conducive. So there were sometimes 20, 30 mile an hour winds blowing out almost every game. And that was just kind of what was expected in this league. The, there were quotes from old newspapers that were basically like, a pitcher could hit 15 home runs in this league. And pitchers did hit 15 home runs in this league. But at the same time, that shouldn't diminish what Joe Bauman was able to do because he did it better than everybody else. And he did it on a level of magnitude that was so much different than everybody else. And Joe Bauman was also kind of a pioneer uh, in this league. He certainly played to the league's style. Uh, he was perhaps the first player um, ever to kind of discuss, or right up there with Ted Williams, uh, to kind of discuss you know, the art of hitting in a way that discussed a lot of the things we talk about in the modern day. He was a pioneer of the launch angle revolution well before it happened. Uh, tried to golf and elevate the ball up into this wind because he recognized there was an advantage. He called this method cowtailing, um, I guess because it kind of, you know, he could swing his bat like a cow swings its tail, uh, trying to golf the ball out. And that was a big thing. I mean, that was in the newspapers nationally for a while because, again, he's putting up these crazy numbers. And minor league baseball is just more of a draw. So national newspapers are following his crazy seasons. And they're writing about Joe Bauman. They're writing about what Joe Bauman is doing. They're writing about what Joe Bauman has to say. You know, that's, you know, the kind of the, the, the core of what Joe Bauman is about. And Joe Bauman is really just all about fun. He talks about how, you know, he would be drinking beers during games. Similarly, he's chain smoking in the dugout. I mean, he just like, I, this is what Joe Bauman was. He was just a mythically large slugger just trying to have a good time. And while his numbers were good, they were not yet mythical. They would not become mythical until the year 1954. 1954, he gets traded, or I think he just decides to sign, actually, in Roswell, with the Roswell Rockets, uh, which is a new expansion team to the Longhorn League. Um, Great game. Area 51 had happened by then, right? Yes, it had. It was just on the, on the, the backside of Area, 50, uh, of Area 51. And actually, uh, there's some fun stuff we're getting into a little bit later. But this 1954 season will go down as perhaps the greatest offensive season ever by a professional baseball player. Joe Bauman hits 400. He has a 535 on base percentage. He has a 916 slugging percentage. All of that means a 1451 OPS. And this is not in a small sample size. This is in 670 plate appearances. He has 224 RBIs. But the icing on top of the cake is that he hit 72 home runs. Wow. Oh. 72 home runs would break the record for the most home runs ever hit in a professional baseball season, which was 69 heading into the year. Um, and Bauman had quite a chase to kind of get to that 69 number because he hit 13 home runs in the final 14 games of the season. Jesus. So, I know. He came on super strong. So he was, he was with, with about, with, with, with 14 games to go, he was, you know, he was obviously a couple home runs off the pace and he has a four home run game. And that starts to really bring some attention to Bauman. And then people are like, oh crap, he might actually do this. 
but he goes into the final game of the year still tied for the for the record so he's tied for the record at 69 and in the final game of the year they bat him lead off to try to maximize the number of at bats he can get to chase down this record and he hits not one not two but three home runs in the town of Roswell, New Mexico, where there are 30,000 inhabitants, there are reporters from Sports Illustrated, the Associated Press, all of the major publications. Life Magazine was there. They are packing the stands to watch this guy go for a home run record that at the time was actually seen as one of baseball's premier records. Obviously, the major league record was held on its own pedestal, but second to the major league record in a lot of people's eyes was the overall home run record as to just who could literally, given the physical constraints of a baseball season, hit the most home runs. That guy was Joe Bauman. Wow. And so 72 home runs was a big story in baseball. First of all, we'll go to why he probably increased his output from 50 home runs to 72 home runs. And that is because not only was he playing in a ballpark or in a league where everything was offensive driven, everything was ever, Roswell especially played in a band box. He was 326 down the right field line, 390 to center. And this is a giant lefty hitter. But that is not to discredit his home runs because his teammates continued to say he hit balls that would travel farther than they've ever seen balls hit. He hit probably numerous 500 foot home runs that season. What, I mean, wind aided 500 foot home runs, but still 500 foot home runs nonetheless. One of his teammates said he didn't just hit the balls over the fences, he hit the balls over the lights. And so that's kind of what you're looking at here. You're looking at a guy with legitimate light tower power. <laughs> this was one of these stories in baseball. Newspapers across the country were writing about his home run chase, especially in Texas. I mean, he was the most famous baseball player in Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico in this time period. No doubt about it. People were flocking from everywhere to watch this guy play. Like, I can't really think of a time that major media cared about minor league baseball for someone that isn't a prospect like obviously they cared about minor league baseball when Bryce Harper is playing in Harrisburg or things like that like the only thing I can think of is like he was a prospect he made it to the majors but like there was intrigue around Pat Venditti but obviously that that the the ambidextrous pitcher but I mean that was like a small kitschy back page type of story like something that sports center would play some funny music over when he would go toe-to-toe with a switch hitter like it wasn't uh an SI I don't know if this was a cover it wasn't like a big SI story or anything like that it was you know and he also kind of was a prospect yeah SI well you've run the topic dubbed his 72 home runs the sports statistic of the year in 1954 it was the statistic of the year. I mean, there were lots of things that happened. One of the things that happened that year is someone ran a sub four mile, first sub four mile ever. No, Joe Bauman's home run was the statistic of the year, which is really something else. And I think what's kind of lost in the season is that not only did he have 72 home runs, he had 400 and drove in 224. 224 RBIs is unbelievable. Like how many, how many other extra base hits was he getting? Uh, he had 35 doubles and three triples. Uh, he had 199 hits because like they only played 138 games. It was a bit of a shorter season. But if you pace it out to 162 games, he would have had 85 home runs, which is really just, I mean, it's comical to think about. When you think about what it required for Barry Bonds to do what Barry Bonds did and all the steroids and whatever, they were interviewing Joe Bauman, 
after all of the Barry Bond stuff and whatever, just to be like, what do you think about it? What's your take on you know, the steroid scandal? He said, well, back in my day, I also had steroids. I had beer. I mean, that's the kind of guy that Joe Bauman is. So here are some, some things, you know, kind of about, about Joe Bauman, uh, just uh, generally. There, there was actually, it's actually a pretty crazy year in the minor leagues in general. Uh, 1954, Vic, we've already talked about the 1954 minor league season on this podcast. Do you know why? We talked about the 1954 season. Indians won the pennant that year, so that's around Herb Scores' beginnings. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Correct. This is the year that Herb Scores struck out 330 people in the first. Right, okay, yeah. And there was also a guy named Bob Lennon, who was playing in double-A at the time, who actually also was coming close to breaking this record. Through about September, not through September, through about August, Lemon and, uh, Lennon, sorry. And, I was going to say, I, was, I didn't know whether you said Lennon or Lemon. I was like, Bob Lennon, like the Hall of Famer? No, Bob Lennon, not Bob Lemon. I am you know, Joe, Joe Bauman and Bob Lennon, who was this guy in double-A at the time, were battling back and forth for the, uh, for the home run lead in the minor leagues. And the minor league home run race was a legitimate race that was covered. Or less the minor league home run race and more just the baseball home run race overall. Who was going to have the most home runs across all of organized baseball? It was a real thing that people tracked. So they were kind of in a back and forth battle. Eventually, Lennon kind of trailed off. And Bauman went on to hit 13 in his final 14 and obviously you know, steal the record by a mile. Um, Bauman would lead the minor leagues in home runs uh, three straight years, his first three years in the Longhorn League. Uh, and in his entire career, he would hit uh, uh, 337 minor league home runs, which ranks him right up there at the top of the minor league home run list all time. And one of the things that makes Bauman so special is, is uh, people did not necessarily come calling after his 72 home run season. It wasn't like teams were like, oh, we're going to you know, promote you, bring you up. He just didn't really want to play anywhere but in this league. Because to him, he just hated the East Coast. He didn't want to play like professionally organized baseball. He didn't want to play baseball in the East Coast for these East Coast teams. He just wanted to play in small towns in Texas, basically. And he wanted to become a folk hero in small town Texas and New Mexico and whatever. He didn't care about anything else that comes with baseball. It's just such a magical, a magical story for him. Uh, when we're on the topic of accolades, he was also named Baseball America's Minor Leaguer of the Century in a vote in 1999. I mean, he is literally Mr. Minor Leagues, and I think he really represents what the minor leagues are all about in a way. Yeah, I don't. I wonder where Luke Easter landed on the all-time minor leaguers because he's one of our he's one of our inaugural members of the canon. For those that don't know, and he was he was a very similar minor league legend himself. He played you know a couple of years in the Negro Leagues and got a couple of years in the major league. He was really really old when he got to that point for a baseball player, so he spent a lot of the back portion of his career in the minor leagues. And also before he got called up, he was in the Pacific coast league where he put up positive stats and he was very much the same way, like a mythical guy, but like a fixture of the community um, that like people really appreciated and loved. And it, it, it was that kind of thing where, you know, and he was even playing like Buffalo. He was playing on the East coast um, at times, you know, where people uh, are, you know, do have bigger cities and can maybe make a trip to New York City or to Pittsburgh or, or somewhere to catch a professional game if they want to. That can be really, really big in terms of where minor league baseball fits into our cultural scene. 
Yeah, and, and I want to talk about the minor leagues as a whole because this has been a big, a big minor league kind of news and note. But there is one final thing I want to talk about when we talk about Joe Bellman. Uh, I mean, there's obviously lots of stories just about how mythical he was and just kind of the whole time period and all this stuff. But he actually was able to make good money playing baseball. And the reason why he was able to make good money playing baseball has nothing to do with his contract. He's being paid pennies by the team that he was playing for. But there was a tradition in the Longhorn League, uh, and, and I don't know if it transitioned to other minor leagues around the time. It was specifically a, a Longhorn League thing. Fans, if you did something that the fans liked or thought was enjoyable, would basically tip you. So they would just throw money out onto the field after you did something, and then you would collect it, and then you would, would go on your merry way. And so Joe Bauman, when he was having his record-breaking season, said he was making about $150 a night. Like his average night was about 150 bucks, which in this time period is crazy money. And on the night he broke the home run record, he made $800 for people who Wow. Um, which was basically a quarter of his annual salary. Not only was he making the money from the, 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 the fans, he was also making money from the rest of the community because he didn't have to really pay for food all season. And that is because some poor guy came up with perhaps the worst promotion of all time. Uh, when the team came to Roswell, a local uh, Roswell ham manufacturer said, every player that hits a home run, I'll give them one ham for every home run. And I don't think he expected someone to hit 72 home runs because he was giving a Joe Bauman a ham basically every day. And Joe Bauman was like, I hate ham now. I can't eat ham ever again. He had ham every single day that season. He was eating for free because they kept getting hams. He, would have to, he had so many hams. He was donating hams to his teammates because he didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> if I got, if I received 13 hams in 14 days, I think I might go crazy. I know. He didn't, he didn't really know what to do. Um, His hand manufacturer clearly didn't know what league was playing right here in Roswell. Like, does he not realize that there are people? I don't know. I mean, it was definitely a mistake. And that's Bauman. After he hit the home run that broke the record, he went to the bar. He had a few drinks with locals. And then he went to work at his gas station the next morning. And that is, you know, what he represented. And he still lives in, in well, he lived, I think he recently passed away about 10 years ago. Um, but he lived in Roswell the rest of his life as like kind of a local legend. People would still walk down the streets and they'd say to him, when I was a kid, like, I remember what you would do. Because he's still a larger than life figure. He's a huge guy, 6'5", like 240. Yeah, about as big as, that's even a little bigger than me. Just a massive figure. Uh, in popular culture, someone wrote a, a actually there's a short story written about uh, kind of a, a sci-fi story about how basically Joe Bauman's 72 home run season was powered by alien powers as a result of his location in Roswell. Um, and it certainly is something kind of from X-Files. You know, Jacob, if you were talking about the minor leagues, I thought you ought to mention that you actually attended a historic minor league game that maybe will live forever in history. That is true. We attended... Well, the problem is the record doesn't stand because it was an extra innings. It became an extra innings game. Uh, it is actually an all-organized baseball record. Vic, I, don't, I think I've told you, although I'm not clear. Yeah, a, a little bit ago. We all attended a baseball game that was the longest nine-inning game in the history of professional baseball. Well, not Vic, my granddad and, I, and the rest of my extended family. Uh, between the Harrisburg Senators and I forget who they were playing, maybe the 
which we flexed. Uh, I can't remember either. But well, I do remember your brother who yeah. all he wanted to do was go home. And every time one of the one team would get ahead, and then the Senators came back. Yeah, it was the game was like ten. The game went like it was like seven nothing. The other team came back to tie at seven seven. Then they went up like eleven seven. The other team went up like fifteen eleven. So then they were up by like a, they were up by like six going into the ninth. They blew right. a six run lead in the ninth inning to 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 go down in the game. They were down by they had they gave up like ten runs in the ninth. They go down yeah. to the bottom of the ninth, down by four, and then hit, score four runs to send the game to extra innings. And it was the longest nine innings of baseball ever. But the problem is it doesn't appear in any record books because it is not the longest extra innings games played, obviously. Uh, yeah. And it ended after like 10. But it is counted as an extra innings game because it went to extra innings. But had it ended after nine innings, it would be the longest nine inning baseball game ever played. <laughs> I will never forget that game. Which is, which was really something. I, it was like, it was like a five hour game. I mean, the whole thing. Yeah. Speaking of the senators, Gary, didn't you play a role in bringing the senators to Harrisburg or attempting to bring them? Yeah, well, I did. Uh, unfortunately, my bid didn't make it, but I wanted to, uh, that was, I love, obviously, I love baseball. And uh, I so wanted to be, I thought to be an owner of a minor league team would be a wonderful thing. So we put together a whole deal with where the stadium would be, which is where I wanted it. And the deal we had was uh, to put it at uh, where Harrisburg uh, Community College was, which I thought was a great spot for parking, whatever. And unfortunately, another group got together and they wanted to put this uh, team on City Island, which I thought was a terrible idea because City Island floods all the time. But the mayor was uh, supportive of that group. And unfortunately, uh, they won, we lost. And uh, so I didn't have the opportunity. You know, that, but I'll tell you, the Harrisburg Senators being there has been a wonderful thing. I mean, we got to see Vladimir Guerrero, uh, Bryce Harper, uh, uh, what's his name, the pitcher for the Senators, uh, Strasburg, Steven Strasburg. I mean, there's been a lot of big names have gone through Harrisburg. No, I remember I saw Bryce Harper play when he was in Harrisburg. He threw out a guy at the plate. He didn't get a hit. I was upset about that. But uh, little did I know, Bryce Harper, future Philly. Yeah, um, yeah. You got the you got the jersey, right? Yeah, I have a Bryce Harper Harrisburg Senators jersey. One of yeah, my you know, jerseys. Yeah, that's funny because remember I was trying to buy you one, and I uh, I said that you'd already bought me one. <laughs> I forgot all about it. <laughs> Just a quick question: Was your did your proposal include a proposed nickname? Was Senator or was Senators what it was going to be always? Senators, no, that was always going to be because. The original, you mentioned Satchel Page and some of these great guys from the Negro League. They, they all played from time to time in Harrisburg with the Harrisburg Senators. And they, that was a, uh, that's a, a very historic team. And that name had to be. I mean, it just, there was no doubt that's what the team was going to be called. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, this serves as a perfect segue kind of into talking about minor league baseball as a whole. And, and, and in researching Jim Bauman, I just kind of realized that he was the perfect minor leaguer. I mean, he stepped away from baseball basically because he didn't want it to become too professionalized. And then he went to the lower levels of the minor leagues, and he just kind of wanted to have fun and wanted to, you know, bring baseball joy. 
And I think that's really what the minor leagues are about. I think, I think that, you know, recently we've made the minor leagues about prospect development and whatever, and that's obviously a crucial role the minor leagues play. But when we're cutting all these minor league players, it's easy to be like, oh, well, they weren't going to make the majors anyway. But I don't think that's the point. I think that the minor leagues is, is a different kind of baseball. As I said in my, my intro, it's kind of baseball comfort food. And I think it's the kind of baseball I, I want right now. I don't even know if I want major league baseball right now, but I know for a fact I want minor league baseball. Yeah, there's there's some good action when you talk about indie league baseball. I don't know how many Lancaster Barnstormers games you guys have caught, but that's always a good time. Oh yeah, yeah it really is. They, well, there's the York Revolution. There's uh, obviously uh, the Reading Phillies, which uh, is that's where that great team we talked about when the with the with, that became great. They all came out of yeah. Reading. Uh, Mike Schmidt, uh, Greg Luzinski, uh, 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 Larry Boa, all these guys came through Reading. Yeah, so let's break down a little bit about, about minor league baseball and about minor league baseball in the time period. And kind of why, so even though minor league baseball is still really special now, I think minor league baseball would obviously be more special if there were guys like Joe Bauer. You don't see guys in high A putting up 72 home run seasons. And why is it that you don't see guys in high A putting up 72 home run seasons? Because they get called up. You get 72 home runs. Someone's calling you up, probably to the major leagues. Yeah. And the reason why Joe Bauman never got called up, and the reason why, uh, you know, this kind of stuff was able to happen in the time period, for one, Joe Bauman was probably not that good a baseball player. He was 32. Apparently, he was historically slow. He could barely move on the baseball field. I mean, this guy hit dingers, and that was about all he gets. Three triples, though, in that season. Um, the band box. a very good defender. Smooth with the glove, but he couldn't really move. Um, he was very slow, and he had trouble hitting lefties. I would love to know what his splits were like. Obviously, we don't have splits from the Longhorn League of 1954. But there's a lot of writing about how he really struggled against left-handed pitching. But if someone hits 400, I have a hard time believing they struggled against left-handed pitching. But if he was hitting righties to like a 550, 600 clip, that would also be something I'd love, to, I'd love to learn about. But most importantly, because they'd get called up. And that is how the minor league system has changed. So when Joe Bauman was in the minor leagues in, uh, in, in 54, most of the minor leagues were unaffiliated. So they were, they were affiliated with major league baseball as a whole, but they were unaffiliated with organizations. And so they just kind of existed. And they played their seasons, and major league teams could basically coach players from these leagues at will. They weren't affiliated with a specific team. Obviously, teams had their, their foreign teams. They had a triple-A team, a double-A team, and a single-A team. But below that, the, like the rookie ball levels, whatever, there were lots of leagues, and none of them were affiliated with teams. There were way more leagues. In 1950, there were 58 minor leagues in organized baseball and countless more like semi-pro leagues, but 58 leagues. Even if each league only has 10 teams, 15 teams, that's hundreds and hundreds, almost 600 minor league baseball teams. Every small town in the country had a minor league baseball team. And that's how these you know, small towns are getting, getting baseball exposure, right? They weren't following the major leagues you know, in, in Texas. Like you look at a newspaper from the time period. I spent a lot of time looking at old newspapers today. You look at a newspaper from the time in Oklahoma. There's a, there's a huge write-ups recapping every single game from the Longhorn League. And there's like a couple paragraphs on the MLB action. So people were following the MLB, but the real baseball that they cared about and they followed were these local minor leagues. 
and they were really special and players didn't necessarily want to leave them because people cared about them. The, you know, there wasn't a ton of upward mobility if they weren't that good. Why would you want to be a double A player if you could, you know, make $800 and get free ham and be the star of the show in long if you were only going to make double A and not make that much money. Right. And, and, and there was like, it just, it was just a different system. Right. And, and that's why I say that, you know, people talk about the minor leagues dying this week with the cutting of all these minor leaguers and whatever, but the minor leagues started dying in the 1960s when teams started to, you know, really cut down on the minor league franchises and all of them became affiliated. Come the 1960s, these unaffiliated minor leagues just didn't exist. And I think the best way to tell that story is by going back to our friend, Joe Bauman. Joe Bauman played first base for Roswell until 1956. He took a year off in 1957. He tried to come back in 1958 for a bit, didn't really. Because in 1958, the team became an affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And in 1958, they were trying to clear way for a new player. They didn't want a 35-year-old Joe Bauman. They were trying to clear the way for a prospect, a rookie, well, not even a rookie, a freshly drafted Willie Stargell. And so Joe Bauman was replaced at first base by Willie Stargell. And that's why I say that Joe Bauman represents the beginning of the death of the minor leagues. Because here is this minor league hero who is clearly still capable of putting up ridiculous numbers. Three seasons ago, he had 72 home runs. And the Pirates basically said, no, we don't need you. Go away. We will cut you. And because he couldn't play in Roswell anymore and didn't want to move, he just went back to his gas station because they wanted to clear way for a prospect. And I don't want to say that the prospectization of the minor leagues is like the real issue, but it's the, the fact that it became affiliated, so ingrained in player development and getting everybody to the major leagues, that's not what minor league baseball should be about. Minor league baseball should not be about getting people to the major leagues. It should be about exposing the country to baseball and places to baseball that don't have baseball. And what, and like you're saying, like, that's not the main problem with the minor leagues, but I think there's one big thing that MLB owners are almost buying into all the, not wrong, but all, all the downsides of that Joe Bauman era of minor league play because they make conditions so poor and salaries so, you know, pitiful and they don't provide for their play and they, and they don't really provide for their players in the off season. They don't even during the season, uh, living conditions can be really, really rough. Like the provisions for minor league players have not improved very much in the last three, four decades. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's certainly interesting. And it, it's just, it's a different... It's, it's, a different almost like, it's almost like MLB owners in their actions are saying the minor leagues are now a business. This is about bringing up prospects. You know, this is about development. Um, and it's very important to the health and future of our ball club. But with their pockets and with their contracts and with um, the way that they deal with playing conditions, it's like they're treating it as though this is the Longhorn League. It's like they're saying, you know, even though this is one of the most important aspects of our organization as a whole, hey, it's the minor leagues, man. You should be, you know, 
playing for peanuts and lo- and applause from you know all the local well wishers and like hey you should get a day job i know and the point is it's possible for minor leaguers to do well as we can see from the joe bauman thing like there are ways that minor leaguers could make money back then that we just don't see in custom and in practice now and i think that's because it's not the town's team right like if you're like joe bauman was roswell's guy if Joe Bauman is Pittsburgh's guy and they're just calling him up all along the way, what do, like, what do they care? Like, because, like, how, why is a minor league city supposed to be invested in their minor league players if they're not going to spend more than a couple months with the team? Unless they're megastars, you know, you need to have, like, the same franchise feel at these smaller levels. And that's what I think is, you know, the upward mobility of baseball is fascinating. But I almost think that people should try to kind of stymie that. Make people want to stay in the minor leagues. The ultra-talented players will always make the majors. But giving minor league baseball life in that capacity, and that might become a result of more indie leagues and less affiliated minor league teams. I'm, that is my, my side take. I, it's unclear to me if it's going to work or not. But I do actually think the cutting of all these minor leaguers might be good for amateur baseball as a whole. Because I think indie league conditions can often be better than minor league conditions. And I think the indie leagues are more conducive to gaining fans in the local area. If I live in a small town and there's an indie league team there, like I'm getting super invested in that season, especially if the quality of play is pretty good. Yeah, and, you can get like good double to quad A type quality in, in some independent games. Some independent yeah. league. And, and so the point being is if this leads to a stronger support for indie leagues, stronger talent in indie leagues, more profitability for indie leagues, more indie leagues popping up. I actually think it might be better because it would be easier for, for these leagues to succeed. And so while I am pessimistic about the cutting of all the minor leaguers, I do think there is an opportunity for growth here, but I, I don't know if we're going to take advantage of that. Yeah, but and the other thing is indie leagues. Indie leagues can be really important for development, and I'm not talking about player development. I'm talking about game development. I think there are a lot, there are, there are changes, fundamental changes that really have to happen in baseball. Well, changes from both the, from the fundamental sense, even to the more cosmetic sense. Uh, but there are a lot of changes that have to happen to the game. And since the minor leagues have become a system where you want to prepare your best players as best as you can for the show, independent leagues could really um could really carry out that task and uh be able to be incubate like incubation leagues for some of the ideas that have to like they could they could try out a seven inning independent league they can they can throw a lot of stuff to the wall when it comes to independent leagues and you know do the only the only rule is it has to work kind of stuff i don't know i think jacob you read that book right yeah i know i love that book you know that's kind of my, my final take on it i just think that small town baseball is really important because unlike like i don't think small town like basketball works per se because in indiana <laughs> yeah but like but there's something about yeah, that was another one of my ventures was to bring uh a small uh, a basketball team to Harrisburg. I still have the sweatshirt if you want it, the Harrisburg Hammerheads. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately that one died, but uh, that was my effort. I figured I'll never get to play for a team. I might as well try to own one. There's something about baseball kind of being 
the, I just think in the summer outside, it's romantic. Like there are small towns all across the country capable of supporting small level baseball teams. We see it time and time again. And it just is a magical atmosphere that is so separate from this major league level. And I thought it was very poignant that that Griffey article was literally immediately below the article about Joe Bauman. So it was this article about this magical minor leaguer, Joe Bauman, who brought all this, you know, joy and whatever towns in Oklahoma. And literally the article below it, I think it was a complete coincidence, was some guy, columnist, ranting about how Griffey is like kind of uh, stuck up and, and, and brutish for not wanting, for being a big city star, right? Like he only wants to play in major league ballparks, major league accommodations. And he doesn't recognize that small town baseball is a value. And I agree with the writer that small town baseball is really important. Where I disagree is that it is Griffey's job to bring small town baseball back. It is not Griffey's job to bring small town baseball back. Griffey is a major league player. His job is to be a professional, to go out there. But I think we don't respect the fact that minor leaguers' jobs are to bring small town baseball back. And minor leaguers can do that, and we need to like empower them to do that instead of you know cutting them and treating them like shit. You know, uh, right now with uh, all sports on hiatus, what they've been doing with uh, in Harrisburg is having a vote on the greatest moments in sports history uh affecting central pennsylvania and the one that uh is still so far number one in the polls is remember a player by the name of milton bradley yes yeah well he he uh the first year that the senators came to harrisburg uh they actually made it into the championship and uh in the 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 most amazing thing one of those things you never think can be real bottom of the ninth last game of the minor double a minor league championship series rainy ugly horrible night uh the senators fall behind by three runs there's two outs bottom of the ninth down three they get the bases loaded three and two count to milton bradley and he hits a grand slam home run and the senators won the championship that's minor league baseball. I mean, they'll never forget that here in Harrisburg. Probably has the perfect mix of like enough people that are in attendance to make it like a big event. But, oh yeah. But a, the right amount of people to make it like a pretty intimate celebration. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, and that's that's crazy that that's uh, atop the list because there are in, there are an underrated amount of things like. Will oh, I know. Chamberlain I had know. a hundred-point game in Hershey, or any of the Penn State national championships. Yeah, yeah, but that was something that just uh, will always resonate. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. It was sort of like you have to only see that in the movies, not in real life. So, so I will, um, I will, I will close on this. You cannot tell the Joe Bauman story with at least recognizing the man who's in the past who had equally impressive seasons. Uh, a guy named Joe Hauser uh, hit 63 home runs in the minor league season and 69 home runs in the minor league season. In fact, it was Joe Hauser um, who broke Babe Ruth's record for most home runs in the single professional baseball season uh, when he hit 63, and then he was passed by some guy named Robert F. Krauss, and then he tied the record again with 69. Uh, he did make the majors actually before he started going crazy in the minor leagues. 
He played for the Philadelphia Athletics for a few years in his 20s, and then in his 30s, he went to the minor leagues and just started getting tanks. I don't really know what his story is, but I presume it's a similar story. You know, he just didn't want to play in like the high minors and just toil away and paid nothing. So instead he went to the low unaffiliated minors and just hit bombs. And I, I think that that is something that I'd like to see back in baseball. Guys who play in the low unaffiliated minors just because it's a better lifestyle for them. than you know, like they'll, double triple A can stay for prospects, but for the guys who are career minor leaguers, quad A guys who aren't going to play in the majors again, but also aren't really gaining anything from playing in the minors, I'd love to see them find a way to, you know, play in these kind of indie unaffiliated leagues and put up cool numbers and do cool things. And until we have that, we're never going to see them like Joe Bauman again, that's for sure. Well said. I mean, Joe Bauman grows up one county over from Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle had a really rough go of it through his major league career, but especially early on, there was one point where he wanted to quit. Um, I think there were a couple points where he kind of wanted to quit. So who knows? Maybe there's a parallel universe in which Mickey Mantle is going to work in the mines just like Mutt Mantle and is spending his nights playing for some local team in Commerce, Oklahoma, inspiring stories that that Oklahomans would tell you that you would never believe. Yeah, I found an article written uh, by an Oklahoman about this Joe Bauman season uh, uh, after Bonds broke, effectively not only broke McGuire's record, but he also broke Joe Bauman's record because Bonds hit 73, Bauman hit 72. So Bonds is now the all-time home run leader for home runs in a single season of professional baseball. But, I mean, that record was held by Joe Bauman forever, right? 54 to, to, to 2000. And, uh, One. But the guy in Oklahoma was like, you know, it is sad, though, because if Bonds had hit 72, Bauman would still have this. And all of us in Oklahoma, remember, all of us who are growing up in Oklahoma remember this. This was more news than whatever was happening in the major leagues. And, and instead, Bauman has kind of been lost to time, although Bauman is the great story for local newspapers, especially during the home run chase when people were actually challenging Bauman's record. Because for a while, Bauman hit 72, and then basically Bauman retired and they changed the whole minor league system so nothing like Bauman could ever happen again. So Bauman literally did this the last possible chance, and then no one had ever come close because no one was ever gonna do it in the minor leagues again. There's just no way for a minor leaguer to do it because if a minor leaguer does something like that, they're getting called up, they're going to the major league, something is gonna happen that slows their numbers down. But in the, in the uh, major leagues, it's obviously still possible, but very difficult, and no one had come close to challenging it forever, of course, until Bonds uh, uh, did. Um, and so it was kind of a sad day for, for Joe Bauman, but also a big day for Joe Bauman in the media. Um, I spent a lot of today reading old newspapers from the 1950s, but I also spent a lot of today reading papers from the mid, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when people were starting to get up into Bauman territory. It was a common story for local newspapers to call up Joe Bauman and ask what his take was on this and also kind of relive Joe Bauman's magic moment. Uh, and for all of the great feats that Barry Bonds did, he did not hit 400 and he did not drive in 224 runs in his magical season. I mean, Joe Bauman in- He got in, 162 games. What effectively amounts to, to five seasons. I mean, Joe Bauman played a couple of other seasons, but he didn't do that much. It went effectively announced to five seasons of minor league baseball. Joe Bauman hit 337 home runs and drove in over 1,000 runs in basically five years, which is, 
maybe more like six, but I mean, still, in that short period of time, in six years, to, to hit almost 340 home runs with over 1,000 RBIs, that is an entire career. Like, some people wish they could do that in their entire career, and Joe Bauman did it in six years. Well, I would like to say, as the number one fan of your show, what happened today is one of the reasons that I love listening. I've, I mean, I've never heard of Joe Bauman. And I just Nobody think that now people. when we hang up, I want to sit, I want to go on Google and read about this dude. I mean, I, I just, you guys bring up so many interesting things that no other show, I mean, they're more worried about, you know, what's going on today, whatever, but the history and the things you bring out are just, I, you, it's a tribute to the amount of work you guys do. It, it's really impressive. I think the thing that makes this story so special to me and why it's one of the favorite ones that I've done though is because it's so intertwined with today's news. There's just been so much conversation about the future of the minor leagues and the death of the minor leagues in today's baseball. And I think you can point all of why minor league baseball is special and also when minor league baseball started dying back at this one guy in his one season in 1954. Because he was what minor league baseball was supposed to be. And when he was driven out of minor league baseball, it is exactly what minor league baseball has changed into today which has led to all of the preceding things. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there was, people were kind of getting, going up in arms. Uh, well, actually, MLB Network made a very divisive decision to air like three straight days of Derek Jeter games, like specifically just games that Derek Jeter played in. And so half of all baseball fans were like, yeah, the captain, Derek Jeter, he's getting his, he's getting his due. And, like, the other half were very, very militant in, in the idea that you only talk about Derek Jeter. You always ever talk about the same people and the same stories. And yeah, exactly. I mean, You're right. And, I mean, while, you know, Derek Jeter is, is an all-time great and his, whether he's over or under or properly rated can be is a debate for another time. You know, he is a, a marquee baseball player in all of history so he probably deserves a weekend of content but that's our goal here is to is to talk about stories that don't get enough love or you know deserve deserve uh, a little more recognition so it, it means a lot that you uh, that you feel that way but you have definitely succeeded I, I i you never any show there's something that comes up either number one the knowledge you guys have about uh, about uh, baseball particularly is incredible but the stories you come up with I, I don't know uh, I don't I don't know how you're doing it but whatever it is keep it up because you're doing a great job with it well can I share one final Joe Bauman note yeah wonder if Joe Bauman got the bonds treatment in 1954 and to some degree he did he walked 150 times which is a ridiculous number for that era Right, so I mentioned that he had 670 plate appearances. He had 670 plate appearances. You take out the walks, he had 498 at-bats. He had 72 home runs and 498 at-bats. He literally hit a home run one out of every five at-bats, basically. Wow. 224 runs and 498 at-bats. That literally means that Joe Bauman drove in a run every other time he came to the plate. I mean, this is – he had almost 200 hits in 498 at-bats. That is unfathomable. I wonder if they ever walked with the bases loaded because that would just put the cherry on top of the Joe Bauman cake. I wonder how he would do that season without a bat. <laughs> I wonder how Joe Bauman would do that season without a bat. 
I have learned so much by Joe Bauman. This is the favorite one that I researched because I went into this with no knowledge about Joe Bauman, and I came out with it's he's just the coolest, most interesting baseball player maybe ever. Um, Lip Pike a close second, but but Joe Bauman is up there for me for sure. Awesome. Well, um, it, clocking in at almost two hours, but wow. I enjoyed every second of it. Oh, me too. I, it was really a, 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 a pleasure and, like I said, an honor to be part of your show. But you, uh, the quid pro quo is that I will be talking to my crew and you guys are going to be uh, have to commit that you're going to be on live from the lounge with our guys. And we'll do a sports. We will do it sports. So we, we cover a lot of different topics. I'm excited. If we want, we're right. doing a canonization live to the air. Air, air. Perfect. Yeah, and uh, if you want me to light up a stogie too, I, that I, sounds good. <laughs> I'll have them for you. <laughs> All right. Well, well awesome. thanks, guys. That yeah, was great. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thank you again. Yep. Take care. To everyone out there, thank you for listening. And uh, Jacob and Gary, I'm Vic Ragupathy saying. We'll see you on the flippity flat flop. Right. You gotta it. leave that in. That's that's the greatest outro we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, take it easy.